Hey there, and welcome back to Season 1, Episode 23 of the Clarity Podcast. My name is Aaron Santamara, and I'm going to be your host. This podcast is all about providing clarity, insight, and encouragement for your life and mission. We have the great opportunity once again today to sit down on uh, another segment of Back Channel with Foth. And we're so excited to have um, Dick with us as listeners send in questions. And um, Dick answers those questions to create some more uh, listener engagement. And so, Dick, we're so glad you're with us. Thank you. Always a joy to be there, even if, even though I'm not like physically there. I'd like to be physically there, but here we are. There we are. The the value of Zoom and, and technology. And so on the, the back channel of both listeners are sending in, in questions and uh, in an effort to make the, the podcast more interactive and um, in that process. So these are two questions. We'll go through two questions that were sent in to me um, today. And if listeners, if you have questions, you can send them to my email that's in the show notes. And then uh, we will um, go through those questions, curate those questions, and then we'll present some of those to uh, Dick and then we'll, we can answer them on the podcast. So the first question today is, accountability is one of the foundational factors in being effective in accomplishing uh, goals and vision. When the vision is owned by the team, when the vision is owned by the team, how do you develop peer accountability one person to another? I think just in the language of that question, um, it, it suggests a possible answer. Um, when we say um, the mission is owned, that would suggest that everyone understands the mission. Let me just start there because, because you have to have accountability to something or someone. Hmm. Um, some, some years ago, and you've had our friend uh, Admiral Vern Clark on, um, I walked into his office at the Pentagon when he was head of the Navy back in the early 2000s. And he said, Dick, have you ever been on an aircraft carrier? I said, yeah, 17 years old, uh, USS Ranger uh, docked in Alameda, California. And I went over and took it. He said, no, no, no. Have you ever been on one at sea? I said, no. He said, we need to have that happen. So he arranged for several <laughs> friends and I to go to, to go to Norfolk Naval Base, the largest naval base in the world. And uh, the fleet was on uh, was on maneuvers 100 miles off the shore of Virginia, the Atlantic. And we got on what they call a cod, which is a twin prop plane that carries people and materiel offshore. And, and we flew. We strapped in with racing restraints, five-point hitch, and had a helmet and goggles. And, and we flew 100 miles offshore and landed at 180 miles an hour on the USS George Washington. Wow. And you, and you stop in two seconds. And that's why you have the goggles to catch your eyeballs. And, <laughs> and, and we got off, we stayed overnight, we ate with the officers, we interviewed people. We, it was an amazing time. What we found out was from the admiral of the fleet who happened to be on that carrier at that time, the captain of the ship, down to the cooks, to the guys fixing jet engines on the fantail of the aircraft carrier, to the officer in charge of the anchor they all knew what the mission was. Hmm. So accountability comes out of commonality in understanding mission in the context that the question is being asked. I think creating, first of all, by, by saying accountability, I have to say, I want it. You're saying, you know, I think I have a sense for the mission, but there may be pieces and angles that I don't get 
and I need another set of eyes on this. I need an, another set of eyes on me. This is particularly true if you're the lead dog, if I can put it that way. That's particularly true. Vern Clark, when he was on, I think he said this, uh, uh, but he said when he was head of the Navy, he actually hired somebody, paid money for them to come on a regular basis, once a month or once every six weeks, to just ask questions that the guys directly under him wouldn't ask or couldn't hmm. for whatever reason, which I, I found to be fascinating. Very, there, very is a, there is a mechanism, people can Google this, it's called StratOps, Strategic Operations, started by a fellow Tom Patterson who now is with the Lord. He went there after 94 years last year. And it, but he, he was vice president of design for Disney for a while. He helped create um, Space Mountain or, or the Matterhorn or something at one of the parks. And he uh, just an amazingly sharp guy, an engineer, great believer in Jesus. And he created an, sort of an amalgam of ways to create structures that build in accountability. You know, sometimes we say accountability and we say, boy, I, you know, I, I know I'm accountable to George over there or to Maria, but I don't know, you know, if she gets out of bed on the wrong side or he's had a bad experience at home. It's, it's sort of accountability by whim. Hmm. Is there some, is there some infrastructure yeah. that allows us all to be accountable and Stratops is one of those. I won't go into it. But you can just Google it and, yeah. and see, see what that is. So you can go to Patterson Institute, one mm -hmm. T, mm -hmm. and check it out. Uh, in order for accountability to work, we need to know who owns what part. Yeah. What are you expecting me to do? I, I was invited when I was college president by my friend Wayne Crace, who was then at Vanguard University in Southern California. He said there's a, a group called Service Master that does training for managers and leaders and you could get in on that. So I went for two days and one small thing that they did that was helpful. When you have a position description, it's just words unless you have adjacent to it performance standards. Hmm. So as a simple example for my secretary at the time, here would be a performance standard. She did all my letters, right? And the performance standard would be that there would be turnaround within 72 hours, once I dictated a letter, and that there would be zero errors. She wouldn't have to ask me if she was doing a good job. She would know if she was doing a good job. Yeah. And you work those out together. So yeah. my secretary came in after a couple of months and said, you know, we could drop that 72 to 48. I can do it quicker than what you've asked me to do it. And so you work that out. So it's, it's mutual, and that makes accountability not so hard-edged. Um, how do we update? When you walk out of a room from a meeting, what are the action steps that each person has? And um, again, my friend Vern Clark, I, I talk about him because he, he has so much experience with leadership of huge things. Not, you know, I've led 100 people or some number like that. He was responsible for 800,000 people, for Pete's sake. <laughs> but, but after 9-11, when he talked about getting his staff together, they couldn't meet in the Pentagon. It was on fire. And he said, let's put on the table what our challenges are in terms of caring for our people. And then he said, I'll go first. When it's accountability, if the boss goes first, if the lead person goes first, 
that changes things. That wow. makes it work. The, the other thing I would say is that we always talk about accountability for our jobs or accountability for our personal life and morality and all that. I would suggest that when you start sharing your dreams with each other, what happens with friends is they start holding you accountable for your dreams. Hmm. And that's a whole other thing hmm. that maybe some other time we could chat about. That. Yeah, for sure. That sounds like another question for uh, Back Channel with Foth. Second question, unity is so important yet so rare. What are some strategies for fostering unity on teams? Um, yeah, what's, what are some strategies you found that can find unity on a team in the areas of ministry work? And um, we do. We, we search for ministry, unity, but it is a rare thing. I think if as a group, our, our opening prayer whenever we're together would be, uh, Holy Spirit, come and make us one. Help us to be one. We know that Jesus wants that. Read the Gospel of John. We know that he wants that. We know that, that, that in those moments, we talked about moments a while back, in those moments when we sense that we are one, that's a profound thing. So first of all, you have to want to be one and you invite the Spirit to do that. Secondly, what helps me be one is when I understand you. And I understand you when you start sharing your story with me. And I've said this before, because um, you know, how, you know, however many years old we are, that's how much of our story we have. And I might bring a couple of skills or a gift set to the table, but what I really bring is me and I bring my history. Everything in my history informs where I am at this moment. So when I start understanding your history and your story, that allows me to connect with you. You've heard me say this before. When you tell me your story, it's a Velcro ribbon to which I can connect because there are pieces hmm. that fit. You and I connect because of the Potomac District, right? Yeah. You and I connect. You don't know this. You, you and I connect because you're in medical healthcare, yeah. and I I was a pre-med student at Cal Berkeley. See, that's just a little piece. <laughs> and I and I got five units of D in chemistry one A, so I decided not to go where you went. So, <laughs> so third, third thing is that when you do things together other than your job, when you, when you play together, there's a great book called Play by a Dr. Brown that talks about, you know, we always talk about necessity being the mother of invention. Hmm. His thesis is that play hmm. is the mother of invention. And that, and that when we celebrate the mission, by playing or taking a deep breath together in some context, because it's hard not to talk about work. It's hard yeah. not to talk about the work, especially yeah. when it's God's work. Yeah. Well, I come back to it's it's God's work and your work. It's your work, but it's God's work, right? Yeah. And and so as you celebrate together, then you acknowledge the differences you have, and you start celebrating that. Any anyone listening to this who has more than two children, or maybe just two children, you know, who are married and they got a family. Um, sometimes you have these conversations as, as spouses. You say, are we sure that all these kids came out of the same gene pool? <laughs> <laughs> they, they, 
they respond so differently to yeah. these things. But you start celebrating the differences. Yeah. You get to know the differences, and that provides unity. And then finally, I'd say, never stop talking. When I became college president, I, I called a fellow, many years my senior, who had been a president for a bunch of years, and I said, how do you, how do you work as administrators with faculty? And Because th these are different responsibilities and folks. And he said, Dick, never let the conversation stop. Always keep talking. Hmm. Put, a, put a comma in it, but always keep talking. This past week, and uh, we are obviously recording this, but I'll make this reference. You can cut it out if you want, Aaron. Um, this, is, this is the second week following the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And I called a friend this week, Rich McClure, who was the former head of United Van Lines and Mayflower, and he became head of the Ferguson Commission that, that looked into the death of Michael Brown near St. Louis, Missouri, some years ago. And they put together a multiracial uh, group from the community. And he said, the first time we met, uh, bunches of people showed up for it, and we had all these commission members, and we were telling them who we were. And after, he said it was a couple hours, somebody said, why don't we get on with this? because we know who you are. So. And he said, what we did spontaneously was to move out from behind the tables on the dais or dais and, and move down and just make little circles with the people and sat and said, talk to us. And they started talking and we started listening. And when we started listening deeply, we began to understand the whys and the wherefores of things. And then we began to lament with them. I don't think we can have unity. Just, uh, that's not a surface word. That's a core, that's a visceral, or as J. Robert Ashcroft used to say, it's a cardiac element to how groups work together. That when we listen deeply to whatever it is, our stories, our concerns, our dreams, then we start seeing unity build so we don't have to work at it. It becomes reflex. It just is. It's good. Good, good stuff. Well, we will look forward to more questions sending in. You can send your questions in to um, my email that's on the um, uh, show notes, and uh, we will jump. Go ahead and jump into our interview today with Kevin Harris. Kevin Harris leads Radical Mentoring, and uh, with a focus of mentoring men and uh, life and mission. And uh, no time better than now to get started. So here we go. Well, I'm so excited to be here today with um, Kevin Harris. Uh, we, him and I had talked uh, a few years ago about radical, radical mentoring um, and me here having a men's group in Madagascar. And so I, I reached out to him and asked him if he would be willing to have an interview to, with our podcast audience to talk about the work that they do and to learn lessons from him. The, the point of this podcast, as we know, is to find clarity in the mix of ambiguity and I'm looking forward um, to his insight, his wisdom today. Kevin, would you just be able to share a little bit about yourself and uh, a little bit about Radical Mentoring? Yeah, I'd love to. Aaron, thanks so much for having me. Um, 
uh, you said it earlier when we were talking before we recorded that technology is pretty amazing and it feels like we're sitting across a desk from each other yet we are yet, i guess technically we are i'm at my desk and you're at yours so that's true yeah so uh, my story aaron is one that um is not uh pastoral and training um, I met uh, my friend Reggie Campbell, who uh, is the is the founder of Radical Mentoring. He just passed away. Um, I met him in 2002, and Reggie, uh, like I was prior to taking on this position at Radical, Reggie was a business guy who had a great story to tell, a God-filled redemption story, and he just had a heart and a vision to want to share that with other men. And so uh, I met him in 2002, almost 20 years ago, as a young, um, up-and-coming, in my own mind, business guy with a thought that I was ready to take on the world, that I knew all the answers. And um, when, I, when God intersected me with Reggie, I began to experience an authentic life of Christ from a guy who, on the surface, had it all together, yet... Um, behind the scenes was incredibly prayerful and discerning about what God wanted him to do in business and in life. And I'm just a benefactor of uh, what God poured into his cup that he so graciously poured out into mine. And so um, for the last almost five years now, uh, Reggie and I, you know, we partnered in Radical Mentoring prior to his passing a few weeks back. Um, and I get to connect with leaders like you uh, from all across the globe that have just got a heart to want to give their lives away and pour into others. And so that's what I get to do. Um, family, been married almost 20 years. I've got two young, relatively young boys. One is 13. It's Thomas is a 13-year-old and my son Bo is a 10-year-old. Uh, so we're in the midst of busy American sports life. Um, and, uh, so that's my that's my day-to-day. -day. Uh, my wife, Susan, um, met here. Uh, well, we met at, at school in South Carolina, and we've been kind of dating ever since and then married again, as I mentioned, for 20 years. So that's, awesome. um, that's my life, and that's my work. And um, so and so, Radical Mentoring, is a, a, you've asked me to talk a little bit about that. Uh, if you rewind back a little bit to Reggie's story, what Reggie started as a group of men in his dining room, um, you know, typically when you think about mentoring, most people think about a one-on-one -on -one relationship. You know, you're my mentor, you and I are getting together once a week, once a month, whenever I reach out somewhat informally, um, I'm gonna come to you as the mentor and say, hey, I've got a marriage issue or a business issue or a theology question I'm wrestling with that I can't answer and we'll talk about it. There is um, oftentimes not a ton of structure to that relationship. It is very much driven by sort of the need of the day. Yeah. Um, and, and what Reggie found in doing a lot of these one-on-one -on -one relationships is he would catch himself at a Starbucks or a coffee shop and he'd be pouring his life into another guy. Um, and then he would look around and he'd go, man, I've got four empty seats around this table and I'm doing this same thing for one guy, but I might be doing it for six or seven or eight or 10 or 20 other men who call me their mentor in a um, formal sense. They would consider me a mentor, but there wasn't a structure to the relationship. And so I as the mentor am being really spread thin. And so what Reggie decided to do in 2001 was I'm just going to invite eight guys to my house. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to 
block out time. We're going to meet once a month. We're going to meet for three hours. We're going to share stories with each other. We're going to pray together. We're going to memorize scripture. We're going to read books. We're going to do some really practical assignments together that will invest in our marriages or in our family relationships or in our spiritual development. We're going to get together oftentimes in between those meetings sort of as a small group, but the hard, fast commitment for these guys are going to be show up to my house on time once a month, be fully prepared for the assignments I'm going to give you. And we're just going to have a 12 month journey together. Yeah, it's good. And so that's, that's what I walked into into Reggie's house in 2002. Um, So what he started doing in 01, I was in his second group. Fast forward, um, prior to his passing, he was in his 19th group. So Reggie himself had mentored 155 men. Wow. Um, Radical mentoring about when Reggie wrote Mentor Like Jesus, which we we may talk about in a little bit. That was the book he wrote that kind of was his... um, his sort of understanding of his process, that it wasn't anything different than what Jesus was doing. Um, we launched the ministry, if you will, which neither Reggie nor I ever really felt like we'd be in the ministry per se. But what we did was we launched it. And then as of uh, yesterday, we're in about 340 different churches and we've seen almost 12,000 men come through this process. That's amazing. We've added a women's component to our ministry as well. We began to hear about the life change for men that their wives were uh, were sharing with us. And they sort of began to say, hey, is there something you can do to help put together a process that would look and feel like radical for women? So we put that together. We now have a track for single men as well as married men. So the ministry continues to grow um, predominantly, as, as I know of, in, in the U.S. and Canada, although you know, we give our ministry away for free. So anybody who's listening to this can go to a website and pull our process down. And what you're really getting is a ministry that's been paid forward by other men and other churches who've been touched by it, who want to get radical mentoring into the hands of folks all across the globe. And so we really just have seen the multiplication happen pretty tremendously. That is awesome. That is awesome. Thank you so much. And I've benefited from it. And um, I appreciate the investment. And um, I've used, as before we got started sharing, I, I read the devotional, I, I want to say 100%, but 99% of my days begin with Reggie and his uh, his devotional and the encouraging words. And I've, I've given it to a lot of friends and people that um, I've worked with and uh, along the path. And it's, it's a great, great resource, great devotional and um, valuable each and every morning. I look forward to it. So one of the ways when we begin the podcast is a lot of times it's, it's a transparent compact podcast with transparent conversations. And what we found is a lot of times we learn more from people's challenges and what they've learned rather than somebody saying, I'm awesome, you know, and all those type things. So it does. <laughs> Which I am, by the way. I, I know, awesome. I know, I know you are. Um, at the same time, we just found that that helps people draw into the podcast when their people say, "Hey, this is what I've learned." So, what are some lessons you've learned over this process, either with mentoring men or setting up the? You said you didn't feel like you would ever be in the ministry, but it, is there some lessons you've learned in that part of it, or just some lessons you've learned, um, just to let us know you are human and. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I really hate to do that because most people don't know I'm human, but I'm gonna I'm gonna reveal myself <laughs> now. It's um, all coming out on the Clarity Podcast. <laughs> you know, it's it's amazing. I think the greatest thing that you realize when when you mentor men, and now I'm leading my fourth group now, so I've got a group of um, 
six guys that will be here this, uh, this next coming Monday. Um, and, and what you begin to realize is men are all carrying the same burdens, but we have become so remarkable at putting the mask on and walking into the workspace or the home space or the athletic space, watching our kids participate in sports or, you know, whatever worlds we navigate in, we, we either have one mask or we have three or four different masks that we put on. And what I've realized is if you can create the right environment for men to feel, as you just said, that they can be transparent, that they can be vulnerable and real, and they can be who God calls them to be, that that space will be a place that then will pour out into those other environments. And so there's a reason why we get men to share their stories first. Okay. One of the very first things up front we do is I, as the mentor, and, and you've experienced this, you as the mentor get to share your story to these men first. Yeah. And we, we challenge mentors to share not the Sunday school version of their story, not the Saturday night version of their story that they might share with their buddies, but the story of where they were in the dark, in the valley, where God showed up, where God pulled them out of that, and where they continue to struggle. You know, I think oftentimes we sort of think, you know, here's where God showed up. I'm saved. Everything's good. Now I just need to tell everybody everything's perfect. And so I don't want them to actually know that post salvation, that my life is still a little bit of a hot mess. Yeah. We, and so when I can share my story and then I'd create space for these guys to share their stories, you can almost physically see the loosening of their shoulders, the breathing happen. And you see them lean in because all of a sudden, C.S. Lewis said, true, authentic friendship happens when I can look at you and go, you too? Yeah. You, know, you too are struggling with fill in the blank. Right. There's a thousand things we can put in there. But when you can create that environment, all of a sudden men can lean into that and realize they're not alone. And then it also gives permission for these guys to then challenge each other. Because now that we're fully known and we're authentic and we're real, I can't show up in the next month and complain about my wife again, hmm. because what's going to happen is somebody's going to go, you know, Kevin, this is the third month in a row. You have shared that exact same complaint, which tells me you're not working on it. Wow, and so good. don't come back. Don't come back next month and tell me the things that aren't happening at your house. You've got to now be the one that leads and draws and, and tries to shape your marriage. And I think that's what we're, that's really the, I think that's probably one of the most common things that happen. The other thing I think that we have seen happen is um, we're programmed in church world. Obviously I'm, I may be speaking to the American church, maybe more than, than some of the things you're experiencing, but it's probably, it's probably not dramatically different. No, I'm sure it's probably same. that. Yeah. You know, we we're programmed to, you know, know, kind of know the right answers and we can, you know, you and I can probably, you specifically, I know I, I may not be able to the same level you are, but if I show up in a men's group that's kind of shallow and low commitment, I can answer my way through that and you'll think everything's perfectly fine. And so, again, it's that tension between, you know, you're not, you don't want to create space for these guys to whine and complain and, you know, and, and just kind of bring all the, all the problems in, but you also don't want to have a space where they can be really shallow and just show up. And so we've, for whatever reason, we've seemed to have, have landed on a model that, again, Reggie, Reggie stumbled on because he was frustrated with his, what he would say, his lack of intentionality. 
Um, and that's just sort of been what we stuck with. And so I think it's, it's just a lot of it's creating that space. That's good stuff. How do you, how do you, can you just go a little bit deeper on that? How you've talked about the importance of transparency, a place that people, it's not, it's not shallow and not just the time to complain and holding each other accountable. Are there some specific things that you found to help create that environment? Because that that's a mouthful what you've just shared. I mean, to, especially with the group, but especially with the group full of men. Um, I yeah. think we've, we've probably all experienced all of those things uh, where guys just show up yeah. and then you have some guys that just want to talk the whole time and get all their problems. And then, and in, so how, how, what have you found that's helped you find clarity in all of that? Yeah. So I think one of the things that we encourage mentors to do is, is a real simple thing meet in your house you know so much of um kind of the the church world and the church uh schedule is planned around the big c church building you know okay. we're going to meet in room 101 on sunday morning at eight o'clock or whatever, whatever it might be and when i can get guys into my house specifically i can get them on my back porch mm -hmm. and i can and sit there and have dialogue in a space that um, where they may not think the walls are listening to what they're saying. It's good. That is a huge thing. I think the other thing that helps dramatically is the mentor. Okay. You know, when I hear somebody call me and say, well, it's not quite working out like I thought it was sometimes our best Bible teachers and our most head knowledgeable folks may be our worst mentors because they think, man, if I can get Aaron to my house and I can tell him everything I know about marriage for the next three hours, man, he's going to go home and be completely changed. That's right. No, he's going to go home and be bored out of his mind because <laughs> I talked to him for three hours. And I think that's the, you know, sometimes it's the one that can facilitate best that carries a humility in their life that just kind of goes, Hey, I don't have all the answers. Yeah. And so I'm going to ask you guys to speak into each other's life. I'm going to share from my own experience. I'm not going to tell you six things I read in an article that I've never practiced before. <laughs> the beautiful thing about this mentoring model is it is life on life. It is, it's designed to be just really practical stuff. And the two great questions for mentors are two great. Well, they have two great questions. One would be, I don't know the answer to that. And I'm going to get back to now. Let me just get back to you on it. That's good. Which, which is not actually not a question. It's a statement. The other one is a question, which is when the mentor leans in and goes, I don't know the, I don't really know the answer to that. What do you guys think? And they just begin to leverage the relationships that have been formed in the room because that environment's been set up as a really, really authentic place. Yeah. How do you, and what have you found that helps create that? Cause that's a, that's a also confidentiality. I would say that's a safe place that guys are sharing. Mm -hmm. Have you found that there's things that make that work? Do the guys hold each other accountable not to share that outside the group or how do you, how do you walk in that process? Because I would think that the first time somebody is vulnerable and transparent and then it, it spreads um, to outside of that group that would break trust and maybe and decrease yep. the sense of safety. What have you found that works, works in that to help put those boundaries and barriers up? One of the greatest things that Reggie did from the very beginning, and you'll, you'll find that most of the stuff that we have done hasn't changed from 2001 when, we, when Reggie first started leading these groups, is he had a confidentiality agreement. 
Okay. Or excuse, well, excuse me. It was a covenant that we have mentees sign. So we have these guys sign a document that basically, amongst other things, says, you know, this is a Jesus-centered model for mentoring. You know, you've got to be willing to take direct feedback. Um, you're going to be prepared. You're going to be, attend every meeting. So it's got sort of those core things in it. But one of the things in there says, I'm going to commit to total confidentiality. Yeah. And so up front, you're going to have these guys sign that agreement. You're going to have their spouses, if they're married, sign the agreement. And what it really does is sort of be a, it, it sort of is a landing place of common ground where these guys now all know where everybody's coming from. That's good. And so it, what we try to do, and I, what I do in my first, usually three meetings is I read through that covenant agreement each, each time so that we're kind of in agreement that these are the reminders of the things we're called to do. These are the reminders that we signed up for. Um, I have heard one story about a fist fight in a church parking lot one time, <laughs> which and I, I can't make this stuff up, but the guy said, literally it was, you and I are in the same mentoring group. You share something with me that, or with the group in whole that you're processing about your marriage. Yeah. And so you're processing out loud. We're talking about it. I go home and I tell my wife, man, you won't believe what Aaron is dealing with at home. Right. She gets up the next morning, calls your wife and says, I'm so sorry to hear that Aaron's dealing with fill in the blank. Right. And she goes, what in the world are you talking about? Aaron's not dealing with that. Well, you were processing it with your group as you should have been yeah. to some degree. And you were trying to determine how do I begin to have this conversation at home? Well, my wife jumped the gun because I broke the confidential ground with this agreement. And this guy said that the next Sunday, two guys got in a fist fight in the parking lot. And it was, it was you and me. <laughs> That's it. Because the confidentiality was broken. And therefore, yeah. guess what? Nobody's ever going to share anything in that. Yeah, in that group important. ever again. That's important. You talked to also, I've heard you say once or twice in our interview about the importance of the guys coming prepared. Could you just yeah. go a little bit deeper, unpack that a little bit and why, how you found or why you find have found that that is so important? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, most of us haven't been held accountable to assignments since we were in high school or, or grade school or college or whatever the different levels of, um, education might be. And so the, the assumption that we've made is that now that we're through our education, we should never be asked to be held to some level of accountability again, that, that feels like it's got to do with, with assignments. And so um, Reggie didn't really care for that thesis very much. And what he, his premise was, if I'm the mentor, I'm going to be fully committed to, to this process. I'm going to make sure my mentees are fully committed. That's good. And so because of that, I'm just going to have them agree that they're going to read every book. And what we ask mentees to do after they read a book is, is to write a one-page net out. And all a net out is is just sort of a, hey, this is what how God spoke to me in the context of this book, and here's how I've applied it. It's not you know, old school book report kind of a thing. Right. So you ask them to write the net out and actually print out enough copies so that you can hand them to everybody else. Wow. That's, um, a, that's an act added level of accountability. Added level of accountability, right. Because what we would typically do is, hey, just email it to me, Aaron. I'll read it and I'll be prepared. Well, I'm not going to read your email. I don't, <laughs> I'm not going to pay any attention to that. So that's one. 
we would say, all right, you're going to memorize these two scripture. And then I, as the mentor, I'm going to go around the table at our next session. And I'm going to ask you to tell me the scripture by keyword. Yeah. Actually by the actual verse and then reference the, the, you know, book and, and verse where that, um, where that scripture is found. I'm going to hold you to that. I'm going to give you a homework assignment, which can sound a little intimidating, but homework assignments are really just very practical application kind of exercises. For example, my guys this month who are going to be coming back on, um, on Monday, I want to know where actually, I keep referencing a date, which we don't know when we're going to broadcast this, but, um, Next time they show up, I've asked them to write a love note to their wives. Okay. They're going to write a love note to their wives. I've asked them to put it in a place where their wife will find it when they're not around. And then they're going to report back to us what that experience was like. Okay. I can promise you having done this now four times, they're going to come back and they're going to think I'm the most brilliant person <laughs> in the world. Because we do all these beautiful things when we're dating our wives, we get married, and then we stop because we think, oh, we've got her now. I don't have to do this stuff anymore. Yeah. I may ask them one month, I'm going to ask them to pray with their wives. They're going to think that I'm asking them to learn the original Greek. Right. That's, it's, a, it's a thing that we, don't, we as men don't do real well because we just haven't practiced it. So yeah. having them do real practical assignments, they can then come back in and have conversations with us about. So really the meeting is less about the book and the assignments, but what they do is they do give you a, a, a common landing ground. And so in the context of my meeting, we can talk about what you learned from the book. Tell me about the homework assignments. And when they're talking about those books or homework assignments, all of a sudden we're going to start to hear other things. I'm going to be listening for things that are going to draw me into a different question or something maybe out of context from what they said the month before. And I'm able to say, what you just said doesn't really line up with what you tell me you want to be when you grow up kind of a thing. And so let, let's help me fill in the gaps on that. Let's see how I can help you go from point A to point B and the other guys around the table can do the same thing. And so that's good. That's good. What have you found um, generationally speaking, are you encouraged that, that in your mentoring groups, that people are in the same maybe generation? Do you, do you want it cross generationally? Do you, have you found that the model might shift different for a different generation? Could you just talk a little bit about yeah. that and that process? Yeah, ideally, um, what we would say is you want the mentor to have a season of life experience ahead of the mentees. Okay. That doesn't always translate into age, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, like I'm 45 and the guys that I have mentored have typically been anywhere from 28 to 42. Okay. But their stage of life it, for me is oftentimes based on how long they've been married or how old their kids are. So okay. if I, my kids are 13 and 10. I'm probably not going to be real valuable to mentor a guy whose kids are 20 and 16. Okay. Now, with that being said, that's not a hard, fast rule. So we've seen now oftentimes somebody will do a co-mentor pair okay. where you may just have a guy who is younger, but an old soul mm-hmm. pairing that younger, older soul with a old soul who is older in age and letting them kind of co-mentor the group has been something that we've seen a lot of value in as well. So That's good. in terms of the actual makeup of the group, I've, I've heard of groups that have 
mentees that are 70 years old to 30 years old, 70 year old, maybe new in the faith, new in whatever age and stage of you know life that they find themselves in. I've heard of groups where the mentor has just entered the empty empty nest phase where their kids have now left and are off university and they're trying to then, they want to mentor men who are married, who are about to enter that phase of life and help them understand that gap. The only real hard, fast rule we would encourage folks to um, try to hold true is married guys stick with married guys. Okay. And single guys stick with single guys, if you can. Okay. Now, because the reality is married guys, single guys often want what married guys have. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, married guys would not mind at all to go back to have what single guys have. Okay. But if you can keep those groups somewhat separate, they at least have a common place to land. Some of the homework assignments are real. I mean, it's, as I mentioned, writing a love note to your wife is really hard for a single guy to write a love note to his dog or his for roommate sure. or, his, <laughs> or his mom. Um, and so you want to try to keep them at least as best you can, those groups. Yeah. Similar, kind of somewhat similar demographics, although that's not always a possibility. No, that's good. That And that's a great lesson. I would have, honestly, I would have never thought about that and the, the importance of that, but it does make you, the way you explain it makes a hundred percent sense that um, they keep those separate because one wants what the other has and the other, it is, it, it's good. It's good stuff. And if you found um, in the process, is there, maybe there's somebody that's, let's say somebody 60 and there are a few, there are a few, uh, uh, life phases away from somebody who's younger. Is that as much of importance to you? Have you found that? Is that a big deal? Say somebody, say a guy's 60 and he's mentoring guys that are 20. Is there too many distances between those two to make that uh, undesirable or what have you found? No, as long as that 60 year old is a true authentic man of God, who's willing to just share his experiences openly with somebody else. I think it's, it, it, it's a beautiful thing. Now, I mean, in fact, all the research, if you've looked at any of um, Fuller Institute stuff called grow, about growing churches that are growing young, what they're saying now is that 20-year-old is less interested in the, in the show and the performance of church. They're really interested in really good, authentic teaching. Mm -hmm. um, this younger generation has now been sold so much stuff their entire lives that they really want to know that the person who's um, teaching them is the same person on, you know, the same person on Monday morning that they are on, on Sunday morning, that they're the yeah. same real person. And so I think they really want the authentic relationships and they really want to be mentored. They want yeah. somebody older and wiser to pour into them because typically the phone rings for a 20 year old, when a 60 year old calls a 20 year old, typically it's because their iPhone doesn't work or they have an issue with their computer. <laughs> and the reality is that 20 year old wants to hear about the life experiences yeah. of that 60 year old. And they're just trying to seek that, that that's mentorship. Good. And so that's good. How does, how does a mentor know that they're effectively modeling what it, an, that authentic relationship with, with Jesus Christ. Cause that's, it's a big responsibility I would think to be leading a group and to be a mentor. Um, 
how do they know? Is it the end of the 12 months you see it? Um, is it the, the goal to have the people that have went through the, the process and the, the growth and development for them to lead groups out of that? Um, how, how, do they, how does someone know if they've effectively modeled um, what it means to be passionately following Jesus Christ and, and transferring that to other men? Yeah, great, great, great question. Um, I don't know if they always know right away. That's good. And I think as men, our challenge is we want to measure it. We want to see the scoreboard. We want to see the results. And we're going to base our success on the, you know, the scorecard that we, that we get at the end of a, you know, where, we're, where are we on the sales chart? Yeah. How many points per game are we averaging? Right. The reality of mentoring a group, it holds me every single day to a level of intentionality around my prayer life and around my devotional life and around how I'm treating people at my house, which my wife would say, sometimes I'm not always modeling to her what she would think I'm probably sharing with these guys, which keeps me really authentic and true. It doesn't mean as a mentor, my life has to be this perfectly beautiful picture of what a godly man's life should be. Right. It also means that I also need to be able to share with these guys the reality of what the life inside the four walls of my house looks like. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the mentor's sole responsibility is to take the life that God has given them and what Jesus has poured into their cup and to pour it out, okay. not to make sure that the mentees catch it. Okay. You know, it, and I mean, a great example, I've got a guy that I mentored one, two, three, four years ago. We are, we're really, I mean, we, you know, we've been, he's been a great friend. He's a guy that I love dearly, but about six months ago, he sent me a text and said, Hey, you know what? I'm traveling a lot more for work and I am feeling like on the road, I'm more tempted to drink. And in fact, I kind of like the fact that I'm here by myself and I, I like this somewhat. I'm beginning to like the lack of accountability around my freedom. Yeah. And I really just need you to hold me accountable yeah. to that so that I'm not drifting from who I know God's called me to be. Yeah. That's a relationship four years ago. That circumstance wasn't real at that point. For sure. As he's progressed in his career and his family, he finds himself four years down the road and turns back to not necessarily just me, but that mentor profile of a person sure. who, guess what part of my story was the freedom of traveling every week in the business world and having some of those same challenges. Yeah. Well, now we're coming back together to a common place. And so that's, that's you good. will not always know the impact that you make. You're going to ask these guys to pay it forward, mentoring a group. Some of the guys may never mentor a group. Okay. If the benefit of that, if the translation of success and the mentoring model for that particular person, he's a better father and a better husband then you have won as a mentor, but you can't necessarily go, well, I, he's now led six groups. It may just right. be, he's a whole lot better at home. And so That's good. it's hard. It's hard because you don't have a necessarily a measure, a, you know, a model or a scorecard you can go back to, but. Yeah. yeah I think it, what you you said, I think maybe Andy Stanley says, uh, we're responsible to empty our cups, but we're not responsible to fill other people's cups or something, something similar to that. And, Re uh, Reggie says it, but he probably did steal it from Andy. Which no, means, or maybe, and Andy, and maybe Andy probably stole it from somebody yeah, else. Who knows? That's that's right. Who knows who got it from who? But it's it's it it underlines your point one hundred percent. And um, I think sometimes as men, we feel that responsibility that we want to fill other people's cup, but the reality of it is, if you've just highlighted and underlined. 
only God can fill their cup. You know, we can pour ourselves out, but at the end of the day, it's only Jesus is going to take care of that. When we look at seasons of life, you talked about the season of your life you're in um, with uh, young boys and sports and all those different things. And the, and the, you see the culture that we're in today. What is, what do you see and what is your, what do you see as the most important reason that men need to go deeper into a relationship with Jesus Christ in the season of your life you're in? You see got men and families running around, as you said, the busy time of sports and all that. In this season, why, why do you think it's so important for men to, to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ in the world we live in? Yeah, this is a great question. In fact, I was reading, um, uh, this is going to sound like super spiritual. Don't, don't read into this at all. Um, but I was reading this morning, John Eldridge's, uh, he just wrote a new book that basically just talks about the power of kind of these, kind of these daily rhythms of life. And um, he talked about the lack of um, the lack of margin that we all have. And one of the things that he he said in in this book it's called "Get Your Life Back." He talked about that. Um, I'm gonna, of course, I'm going to try to find it while I'm talking to you, which is typical guy to try to do things at once. Um, he talked about that that our desire today is to be efficient. And efficient is what has caused us to remove margin from our lives. Okay. And that, um, you know, we, we lose sight of the fact that when the Bible says Jesus was going to Galilee, mm-hmm. we think he might've been, you know, jumping in a car and making a quick trip, jumping over to Galilee in 30 minutes. But what we forget is that he was, he was literally walking with a group of men and it may take him three days, two weeks to get there. And over that time together, they were unpacking what happened. They were catching their breath. They were talking about the encounter that they had. They were asking questions and processing what, what they had just experienced together as a group. And what we have dealt with is we went from, this is again, this is out of this Eldridge book. Um, he talked about, we've gone from, sending letters to sending emails to sending text messages to now we don't even respond to text messages. We just respond to text messages with a picture that we hope captures somewhat <laughs> of the ocean we're trying to deal with. Yeah. And so we have just pushed ourselves so far into efficiency that we've lost, we haven't created enough space for us. And so yeah. um, I just think that's the greatest challenge is is understanding the power of margin, understanding that um, that you don't have to be on, you know, on demand 24 hours, seven days a week, that we've got to create some space for God to have access to not just our minds, but to our hearts and to our souls. That's and good. Um, that, that's, I think good. that's probably the, one of the most, most uh, powerful things I think that, that, that I, I think one of the lessons that we're trying, I'm trying to enforce both in my own life right now, because part of the reason why this book jumped out at me. Yeah. Um, and again, it was uh, John Eldridge's new book called get your life back. That's good. In seasons of life. I think we do. We go through those different times where, you know, where margin seems to be like a uh, impossibility, but at the same time, you know, my wife always says you, you chose that. And, uh, right, so a right. lot of, a lot of the times, uh, my lack of margin is something I've chose and yeah, you're hundred yeah. percent, right. The idea of being efficient, we want to be efficient. We want to be effective. 
but a lot of times efficient effective leads very little room for recharging refreshing and re-energizing so that we can we can in the future so you got it we normally end with the podcast. Um, one of the last things we do is a story or something that this has put gas in your tank, has given you energy, and it's been inspiring. Maybe in the last, I know you've it's been a very um, emotional last with with Reggie's passing. But has there been something that's just put gas in your tank, or something that is is filled you with hope, and um, something you'd just like to encourage the audience with? Yeah, no, it it has been a heavy season. I think. Um, what I've, uh, in the power of transparency, as we talked about, I kept trying to figure out why and how I was supposed to grieve the loss of Reggie. Yeah. And what I began to realize is that I had time with Reggie. I mean, mm -hmm. I, we knew over the last, you know, when I, he had a lung transplant three years ago, we knew that he was, you know, dealing, dealing with borrowed time in, in many ways. And then the realization that, Reggie's is a whole lot better place than you and I are right now. Yeah. Uh, but what's fueled me more than anything was getting to hear and capture some of the stories of the men and the wives that he directly touched. Um, but also guys like you who never met Reggie, who are in Madagascar, but yeah. who had, who, the ministry that he started out of his own home out of, you know, desperation to recapture his time again, back to the margin point has impacted 12,000 men that we know of, but we know of people above and beyond that all around the world who've been touched by his, his life and his ministry and his mission. And I think yeah. that's been over the last two weeks when I, I know at some point I'm going to grieve deeply. Yeah. In fact, that, I, on my phone, my favorites, I still have Reggie as one of my favorites. And my 10 year old on the car yesterday goes, you know, dad, he's not going to call you again. Right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. there's the grieving that's happening, but I, yeah. the legacy and the impact that he's made over a yeah. tremendous amount of lives um, yeah. is, will fuel me, but also will fuel the future of radical mentoring is yeah. I think we're all sort of feeling that loss, but feeling the, the desire to want to push and lean into others lives so that they can have a life that matters. That's good. That's good. Hey, would you take a minute or a few minutes and pray for the listeners? Pray for, uh, pray for the men who are listening. Pray for the wives, because that's the other thing yeah. that I've heard you say throughout this interview is that, that the impact of radical mentoring—it's just not on the life of a man. It's the life of right. their wives and their families, and for single guys, it's on their for their future wife and their future families. And um, that's a very very, very, very rich point um, to realize it's it's not just one man, but it's the impact it has. Will you just take a few minutes to pray for the listeners and uh, pray that God will use this? And um, yeah, the, that we will be the mentors and follow the example like Reggie of mentoring like Jesus. Absolutely. <clears throat> uh, Jesus technology is amazing um, that uh, Aaron and I can connect and have a conversation that will then get captured and put into the hands of uh, men across the globe. And I just pray, Lord, that, um, that first of all, that you will use this conversation and that it will be stewarded um, both in my heart and Aaron's heart and in the lives of those who hear it. Lord, I can't always relate to um, what others face as they, as they, 
face their faith in a, in a world that's different than mine. And so I just thank you for the context and the perspective that um, whether you're in Madagascar, whether I'm in Madagascar or Aaron's here or vice versa, Lord, you're present and you care and you're with us. Um, Lord, I pray for these men who are leading ministries across the world. Lord, I pray that you'll give them the perseverance to run the race um, and continue to fight um, because they're fighting for what matters. They're fighting for you. They're fighting for the lives of the men and the women that they impact. They're fighting for the big C church across the world, Lord. And we know that that is um, the church is your vehicle to change the world. And so I just pray for perseverance for those that are carrying that, um, carrying the gospel, carrying your message, Father. I pray for their families specifically, Lord, that um, I know if, if, we're, uh, if we claim to be in ministry, sometimes that means we're really good at ministering to others, but we may not be great at ministering inside our own houses. Mm-hmm. And sometimes our wives feel the burden of that or our kids feel the burden of that because it is hard work to do your work. And so, Lord, I pray for these men that they would um, not just mission be, be on mission outside of their homes and in, in the world, Lord, but they'll be on mission inside their own homes pray for their wives and their kids. Um, Lord, I pray for those that aren't married, Lord, that they, um, that you'll just, you're preparing them. We know you're preparing them for potentially a life of, of being married, but potentially a life of, of singleness, Lord. And, um, Lord, we know that your plans are greater than anything we could ask or imagine. We know that, um, your plans are written out and, uh, we don't know them, Lord, and we want to control those, uh, we want to control that narrative, Lord, but we need to leave space for you in that. And so, Lord, again, I just lift up Aaron. I thank you for his heart. Thank you for his mission um, in Madagascar, Lord. I pray safety for him. I uh, pray for peace for him, Lord, and again, um, perseverance. And just thank you that he has got the vision to want to put together a, a message that he can then push out into um, the lives of others that are um, on mission like he is. And so I just ask that you bless each person that hears this message, that it will go from their heads to their hearts. If they can just grab one thing um, and implement that, Lord, I know that um, you'll honor that. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Amen. 